We've been in this series called The Kingdom of God um, all year long. And we've been taking a look at specifically what is the kingdom of God and how is that different from every other kingdom? And what does it mean for Jesus to be the king of this kingdom? Today what I want to do is I want to actually go through some contours in the book of John, the Gospel of John. We're going to highlight a few things through the Passion Week of Jesus as recorded by the Gospel of John. And I want to look at this idea of what I'm calling subversive confrontation. Well, what is subversive confrontation, John? I asked Britt if there was a better title. She said, yeah, something people can understand. So I couldn't think of anything and neither could she. So I'm going to explain what I mean by subversive confrontation. What I mean is a conflict, a confrontation that's done in a way that is subversive, a way that disrupts and undermines the established system. Today, we're going to look at how Jesus does this very thing, how he undermines, subverts, he, he disrupts a system through confrontation to reveal the true nature of the kingdom of God. Some of you know, some of you don't, but I have a book that's being published this summer. And there is an appendix in the book that will continue some of these themes. And I want you guys to be aware of that. If you'd like to learn more about it uh, or grab yourself a free e-copy when it drops, you can go to my website, johnsherwood.com, and sign up there. But I want you guys to be aware that I am writing and thinking and studying and dialoguing about these topics. And this is kind of an overview of what we're going to do today. We're going to look at John 13, John 18, 19, and 20. We're going to look at a few of these contours, a few of these highlights as John presents them to see what we can extrapolate from Jesus about the kingdom of God. And in particular, we're going to look at the last week of his life, often referred to as the Passion Week. How many of you guys have seen The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson? Okay. That's a visual depiction of the Passion Week, of the final week of Jesus' life as recorded by the four evangelists, the gospel writers. In John 13, where we'll begin, we get this glimpse into this question of what will we die for in the kingdom of God? And then we're going to look at a passage in John 18, and we're going to see this question be raised, what will we kill for in the kingdom of God? And then in John 19 and 20, we're going to take a look at this subversive conflict, these two dueling kingdoms, and how Jesus wins the conflict in the most unexpected way imaginable. So let's look at John chapter 13, verse 31. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. As just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, 
why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. If you're not familiar with the Passion Week, if you're not familiar with the Gospel of John, uh, I want to encourage you to go and read through this second half of the Gospel of John, which records this last week of Jesus' life. And here, some of your Bibles might subtitle this part of the passage, Jesus Predicts Peter's Denial. How many of you guys have heard of Peter denying Jesus before the rooster crows? It's a very famous scene in Christian literature. And interesting, here at this scene where Jesus is sharing this last supper with his disciples before he's going to be killed and he's trying to prepare them for his inevitable death, which they don't foresee coming, right? Like you got to try to remember to put yourself in the shoes of the person that's there. We have the end of the story, so we have a wider lens than they would have had at the moment. And Jesus is saying, you know what, guys, I'm going somewhere and you can't come. And these guys have been following him around for three years. They've left everything. They've been living probably in impoverished conditions most of the time, been wandering around homeless. And now the guy's like, I'm leaving. You can't come. What would you say? You'd be like, I want my money back. You know what I mean? What was this? Come on now. And he's like, I'm ready to die with you. Come on, Jesus. Don't you see my devotion? Don't you see I've left everything? I'm ready to die. And he was. But what does Jesus say? I think this is so interesting. He says in verse 38, will you really lay down your life for me? He says, actually, you're going to disown me. So the stage is being set for what I want to call a subversive conflict. Look over in John chapter 18, verse 1. Now this is the scene of where Jesus is being arrested. When he had finished praying in the garden of Gethsemane, another famous scene, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. And on the other side... There was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I guess they had to get up and dust themselves off in order to say that. I don't know. That's such an interesting scene. He says, I am he. Right, which is hearkening back to what? Bible students. What's Jesus' statement there? I am he, hearkening back to. Think of, yes, that's right. When God declares his name, I am 
who I am. This is one of the things that upset the Jewish religious people the most. John highlights this. You have the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Jesus claims that he's God, and this upset everyone, and ultimately is why he was charged to be killed, because he was claiming that he was God. And the Jews believed that was blasphemy and worthy of death. And so Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. I guess we needed to know the servant's name. It was Malchus. Thanks for losing your ear, Malchus. You will ever be remembered. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? In this scene, we know from the other three gospel accounts that all the disciples at this moment run away. They all flee. As soon as Jesus rebukes Peter to put his sword away, they all dip. Jesus here is willingly giving himself up to the authorities in a non-retaliatory, peaceful manner. And then his boys come out swinging. Like, look, and you know, I assume that Peter wasn't trying to cut the guy's ear off. I'm assuming he wasn't that skilled of a swordsman. Because, you know, he's a fisherman. So he's showing you his craft right now, Okay. It'd be like you trying to pick up a gun and shoot somebody. You're probably going to miss unless you're well-trained. So he picks up his gun of his day, and he tries to shoot this guy. And he misses, but he still hurts him. And Peter is rebuked. No, 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 no. And what does Peter do? I'm out of here, man. Bump that. He said, I'm ready to die with you. Jesus says, not like that. He says, oh, forget it, then I'm out. I want my money back. This is important as we look at the nature of God's kingdom and how it conflicts and confronts the kingdom of people. Peter is ready to fight for Jesus' cause. He's ready to fight for the kingdom of God. He's ready to die, and he brings out his sword to protect himself, to protect his friends, and to protect his innocent rabbi. Jesus is innocent. Peter says, I'm defending you. But Peter is not willing to lay down or put aside, tithe me, his life for Christ. Jesus' ring Jesus' words ring from John 13. Will you really lay down your life? Peter was ready to die, but not lay down his life. Sometimes it's said that people are pacifists because they wouldn't want to fight anyways. Meaning that if they fought, they would lose, so they want to be pacifists. But you know, that's not Jesus. As you look in the other gospel accounts of this scene... All the other gospel writers note 
that Jesus makes the very opposite point. He says, Peter, don't you know that I can call at once upon my father and he will dispatch 72,000 angels to obliterate my enemies? Jesus is saying, I'm not powerless here. I choose to lay down my life. And this choice only came for Jesus by wrestling in the garden with his father, to be submissive to his father's will. He says, I don't want to drink this cup. Maybe Jesus would rather have preferred to call the angels. He could have called 10,000 angels. So it's not that Jesus is powerless, and so therefore he's, you know, succumbing to this situation. He says, I have the power here, but I choose to subvert this conflict. And I think that this is hearkening back to the story of Elisha in 2 Kings 6. If you guys remember there, Elisha praying for his servant's eyes to be opened. Do you remember, what did his servant see? For those of you who've been reading the Bible out there for a while. What did his servant see when he prayed? Do you remember? He saw the army of the Lord, the chariots of fire surrounding them that were invisible to his eyes until the prophet prayed for his eyes to be opened. And the prophet says, look, those who are for us are greater than those against us when they were surrounded by the army. I think Jesus is trying to do the same thing with Peter here. He's trying to help Peter see what he can't see. He's blind. Jesus isn't a wimp. He's not scared. It's not that he doesn't have strength and power, but rather he's trusting in his father's will, even to the point of laying down his own life. He's trying to help Peter see the chariots of fire. But you can understand, right, why Jesus and all the other, I'm sorry, Peter and all the other disciples fled Jesus. What do you think you would do? If you were standing there innocent, with Jesus, innocent, coming to be arrested, certainly to be killed, you think you'd be like, yep, come on, sign me up. Here we go. You and I might be like Peter and James and John and everybody else. We're out of here. You're not even going to let me swing a sword to protect our own innocent selves? You're not going to let me have a concealed weapons permit, Jesus? Oh, I'm sorry. I'll back up off your toe now. My bad. Okay, I'll get there. I've got to ease into it. This begs the question for us, though, today, as American Christians, what will we die for? And perhaps, more importantly, how are we willing to die? Are we willing to die in a blaze of war-ridden glory, like Maverick and Top Gun? Because we're the good guys? Or are we willing to lay our lives down alongside Jesus because we trust in the Father? Look in John chapter 18, verse 33. I will assume by your silence you are hearing what I'm saying. Pilate then went back inside the palace. I'm obviously just shaping contours here. Please go back and read the whole story. He's arrested. 
He's beaten. Now he's before the Roman governor. He's before Pilate. And he summons Jesus and he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? This was his charge. This is what the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate saying. This guy says he's the king of us. Check him out. Is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Ah, you are a king then. You say that I'm a king. In fact, the very reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And I love Pilate's response. What is truth? The stage is set. This subversive confrontation is happening. It's a showdown at high noon. I envision tumbleweed rolling along the ground in Pilate's court. It's Jesus versus Pilate. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, versus the most brutal and far-reaching empire of conquest the world had ever known. Pilate's trying to figure Jesus out. He's so confused. He's so confounded. It's like, this, this man, Jesus, is an enigma. Like, what are you doing here? Like, wait, no, your people brought you to me. Like, you could tell Pilate's struggling, right? Like, just give me the answer. Like, what are you doing here? What'd you do wrong? Jesus has his cryptic, enigmatic answers. Pilate's like, Dad, gum it. Your people brought, come, come on, man. Like, you could tell he's trying to, like, weasel his way out of this whole situation from the start. He's trying to figure out if he's really a king and therefore a threat to Caesar, a threat of insurrection to the Roman Empire. You know, there were many peoples who were conquered by the Romans that didn't really like being conquered. Did you know that? There are many peoples who tried to fight back against the Romans. Even after they had been conquered, uprisings would occur. Did you know that? Did you know that's how our country started? It's the same old story. It's a confrontation of two kingdoms. Jesus says, I am a king, but I'm not a king like you've ever seen before. My kingdom is not of this place. And I find it interesting that in their conversation, the primary way that Jesus highlights and differentiates God's kingdom from every other kingdom in the world is that his servants don't fight to install it or defend it. That's how Jesus highlights how his kingdom is different from every other kingdom. It's a kingdom of peace. This prince of peace that the prophet Isaiah foretold hundreds of years before would come in order to establish God's kingdom, not by force, not by war, but rather a self-sacrificial love. And he says, come, follow me. 
I also think it's interesting as a side note, in the middle of this scene, it's the crowds who are demanding that an actual known criminal, an insurrectionist that has been a part of a violent uprising, they want him to be released instead of Jesus. Do you see the confrontation of the two kingdoms? Jesus, an innocent man who claims to be king, not of this world, but of a peaceful kingdom, they say, crucify that dude. Well, should I give you Barabbas, a known insurrectionist? I, could you imagine being Pilate? Like, I'm letting this dude go who's already started a violent conflict with me. And if that happens again, Caesar's probably going to kill me. And they're asking that I let that guy go? Man, Pilate's in a rock and a hard place. Because what happens if he doesn't release Jesus? He's going to have another uprising on his hands. So Pilate here is just trying to, he's a middleman between these two kingdoms in a battle. He's like the referee in the UFC fight that catches a side blow on accident. He just got in the middle. Oops. It seems, though, for John, who's writing this, along with the other gospel writers, they're wanting us to see that violence versus peace is at the very heart of Jesus' message and his life about the kingdom of God. Let's keep reading verse 6 of chapter 19. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. There it is again. He's trying to get out of it. He's doing his best. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Pilate's like, wait, well, you just flipped the script. I thought you said he was your king. Now you're saying he's the son of God. Which one is it? And Pilate's freaking out. So he goes back inside the palace and he goes to Jesus. He says, where do you come from? But Jesus gives him no answer. Pilate said, don't you realize that I have the power to either free you or crucify you? You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. This is the pinnacle of this subversive conflict. This is when the pistols of peace are drawn. Jesus, before Pilate, undercuts all his power. Pilate's sitting there going, I'm the victor, man. I have the insignia of Rome on me. I can have you killed like that. I have the power here. What does Jesus say? Nope. How confusing do you think that was for Pilate? He thinks he has power because he can kill Jesus. But Jesus subverts, undermines, he undoes all of Pilate's power by telling him that whatever power he thinks he has is ultimately from God, who is the only true sovereign overseer of life and death. 
And it stuns Pilate. And it stuns us too, doesn't it? And made Pilate become afraid of Jesus. We tend to be afraid of people who aren't afraid to die. Chapter 19, verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. <laughs> you think? Pilate's like, I don't want to be on the wrong side of this conflict. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in, Arab, in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, crucify, crucify. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priests of the Jews answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Although Pilate seems to be convinced of Jesus' kingship, that he really is a king of a kingdom not of this world, Apparently, he thinks that Jesus is innocent, but he faces a crowd that's calling his own allegiance to Caesar into question. They shout at him that if he frees Jesus, they are no friend. He's no friend of Caesar. That means he's swapping his life for Jesus now. Because if the chief priest goes to another prefect and says, this dude sold Caesar out, he's now going to die. So the kingdom of the world, represented here by Caesar and Rome's military might and dominance, their wealth and material opulence, their highly sensual and violent culture, it's pitted against the kingdom of God, represented by Jesus, who by this time is standing there in front of everyone, bloody, beaten, and torn to shreds. And he stands there in peaceful, non-retaliatory, defiance and he says you have no power over me this is the most upside down kingdom anyone has ever seen so we've got to ask ourselves who is our king there's only two options really it's Jesus or it's Caesar Caesar and the kingdoms of the world can be represented today by a lot of different things in certain parts of the world, it could be an actual dictator like Caesar. But for us, in our context, it's probably more likely that it's things like you. Your own feelings, your own desires, your own wants, your own ambitions. Things like money, the deception of wealth. Perhaps even concepts such as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that undergird our cultural identity so strongly. This phrase, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, are three examples of unalienable rights that the Declaration of Independence says has been given to all humans by their Creator, something that we celebrate as a nation very soon. It says in the Declaration of Independence that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is an unalienable right given 
to all humans by their creator, which governments are created to protect. Good idea, right? Ironically, however, it was created by a budding government that apparently found these unalienable rights inappropriate to Africans of the transatlantic slave trade or the Native Americans that resided in the land that they were now deciding to govern. This is an American war poster during World War II. July 4th, 1776, when our Declaration of Independence was signed by loyal Americans, were of one mind to protect life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 166 years later, in the 1940s, we are of one mind. Hitler, Mussolini, and Hiriotto shall never take from us the freedom for which our forefathers sacrificed their lives and fortunes. Now, of course, I am all for life, liberty, and happiness. But at what price? Am I willing to kill for it? And how do we define these things exactly? What is life? What is liberty? And what does it mean to be happy? Jesus says that he himself is the truth, the life, and the freedom. Just like Pilate, just like Caesar, it's still a clash of two kingdoms today. The myth of Christian American nationalism is just that. It's a myth. I hate to break it to you, but Rome was not God's country. Not when Constantine said it was so, four centuries later after Jesus, and nor is it today, no matter what talking head on any news outlet will tell you. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness has to do with laying our lives down, being willing to trust in a sovereign God of the universe, even with our very lives. And that is easier said than done, and that is why the disciples fled. But guess what? They came back. And every one of them, as far as we understand, did lay down their lives, which is why Jesus told Peter, you can't follow me but you will. You're not going to do it now. You're not ready. You're still trying to fight because you don't see what's going on. But there will come a time when you see, just like Elisha's servant, and you're going to willingly lay down your life to your enemies. So this brings us to John chapter 20, the most unexpected, surprising, magnificent victory of war that has ever happened. Resurrection from the dead. And it's hard for us now because 2,000 years later, we're so inundated with this message that it's lost its power. It's lost its relevance. It's become so mundane from us. The dude rose from the dead. Like, that's a big deal. And without it, none of the stuff that came before makes sense. You and I should be running away if not for the resurrection. Jesus overcomes death and he renders it powerless. Even death itself has now been beaten. 
Not through conflict, not through war, not through technology and medicine, not through the pursuit of transhumanism or the singularity, but through humble, obedient, self-sacrificing love to God. The kingdom of God is so unlike the kingdoms of this world that we can't even recognize it sometimes. It is so different, we can't even see it. We're like Elisha's servants. We need to have our eyes opened. Sometimes we have to strain really hard to see this peaceful and loving lamb laying bloody on the altar and then being risen from the dead as the true conqueror of the universe. Caesar conquered this much land of the earth and Jesus willingly laid down his life and conquered death itself. This is who we have to fight to put our hope in, to put our trust in. Not in the systems and institutions of mankind, however benevolent their intentions. Hear what I'm saying and hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the Declaration of Independence was not a great attempt of man at something noble. What I'm saying is that it is not the kingdom of God. And by way of sidebar, any nobility in its intentions is from the kingdom of God. Because we don't understand life, liberty, and freedom apart from Jesus. We have to fight to put our faith and our hope in Jesus alone, just as he did in the garden, even in the face of death. But guess what, though? The story doesn't end there. He raises from the dead, and he promises that he's coming back. He promises that all will be judged and justice will be done by the Father who can judge justly. So where does that leave us? In the meantime, as we're waiting out, how many of our breaths we get, we're striving to be peacemakers, trusting Jesus with our very lives and the lives of everyone else, and that this is what it looks like to be in this kingdom of God that is a subversive conflict to every other kingdom of the world with the Prince of Peace as our King. This has been a heavy topic for about a year of my life, specifically the last year, though I were introduced to these topics many, many years before. And as I've been dialoguing about them, this is not on my notes now, you can tell I'm in my little preacher sidebar. I wanna bring the congregation along. I wanna do it thoughtfully, considerably. I wanna do it patiently. But we've gotta wrestle with the scriptures. This is where I'm calling each and every one of you to wrestle with the scriptures. Don't let me or any government official or anyone else in the kingdoms of, the, of, these world, of this world tell you who God is and his kingdom and what his kingdom is like. We've got to wrestle this out. And for some of us, we're going to find ourselves in the middle of that conflict. We're going to find ourselves in the middle of a conflict between two kingdoms. Maybe we've never seen that conflict before. Maybe it's been there all along. But we've got to trust God as he brings us along. 
to help us more fully realize who he is, what his kingdom is like, and who he's calling us to be as his kingdom people. Let's pray together.